Good morning. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning. Um, just by way of, of Thanksgiving introduction, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by the, the kindness and generosity of many who I've met over the last couple of days this week, and I'm humbled to think that you would even desire for me to be uh, a pastor on this staff. So I'm grateful to be considered uh, to be a pastor here potentially. And, uh, you know, that's really awkward, by the way. That it's, it's awkward to uh, preach. And this, your job's kind of tied to that. I know we all have things that we engage in that call us to, to, to these moments. But um, I must say it's a little awkward. And I, I remember my kids in my house, often five children, and they would often scream out to me, Dad, you're so awkward. You're just so awkward. I'd say, well embrace the awkward. So I'm asking you to embrace the awkward, embrace me in some degree and measure. Uh, it's a pl- privilege to come and preach God's word with you. I- I've been really encouraged by your senior pastor, Les, a dear friend over the last 20 plus years in ministry with RUF and local pastoral ministry who's led me and Kathy through this process and grateful for your search team that made up those men and women who spent hours praying and thinking and deliberating over the last several months and and having a, a very special time with them who asked very good and pointed questions of me and their calling upon their lives and my calling upon my life. And, and then lastly, your session was super kind and helpful to consider what God has you doing and who you're going to be here in Oxford and in the future. So it's a, it's a privilege to be with you. I also want to thank you that you may not know this, but you support me as one of your missionaries. Uh, I'm a Mid-South ministry coordinator for the Mid-South Church Planting Network. I've had that role for the last five years. I planted a church in Hernando and have led this network uh, into its, this season. And it's been exciting to see in the last 10 years we have particularized or organized six churches. We've had over $3.5 million given to that work. We have five active ongoing plants right now that we oversee in Shepherd between four presbyteries, about 130 churches uh, 40 or so churches partner with me as a missionary, and you're one of those churches. So thank you for your support of me even this morning. Well, we come to a text that means a lot to me personally as a student at Old Miss. Uh, these verses became alive in my Christian life and experience. I came from a very broken and pagan home in many ways, and so when I came to Old Miss, God got a hold of me and got me involved in a Bible study at RUF and then the local church, College Hill, at the time. And it was through the reading and studying of God's Word that He began to renew my heart and my mind. And probably many would have looked at me in my Christian experience at that moment and said, that guy's not a Christian. There's no way that guy's a Christian. I've been around it. But I knew what God was doing in me was from Him. And it could be not, no other way around it because He was at work in my life. And so I remember listening to Renewing Your Minds. Uh, they didn't have podcasts, right? That's, that's the old radio station and, and, and reading books like Holiness of God and Chosen by God and God using those works to stir up in me faith and to change my life, change the way I had friendships with others, the way I was a roommate, the way I thought about family. And yes, it even changed the way my, I had a real love for, for school. My grades got better. Can you imagine that? Even as an old Miss student, my grades even got better. And so God really used this text to really encourage me in my faith to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But coupled with that in this text, right, is that we're presenting our bodies as well. Uh, I think it's easy for us to go, yes, renewing our minds, but what about our bodies? And we'll get to that in a minute. 
If you were to summarize chapter 9 through 11 in the book of Romans, you would hear the, the, the sovereign declaring love of Jesus Christ as Paul would write about. It's God's sovereign electing love. And when we come to chapter 12, we move into the, the pastoral application of this electing love. And, and one thing he says, if you were to summarize all of those chapters, verses chapters 9 through 11, you would say it's simply one word. It is the word mercy. And because of his mercy, in our callings in chapter 11, we are called to live, as John Stott would say, consecrate, live with consecrated bodies and renewed minds. And that's the hope of what we come to in this text this morning, that God would use our minds and our lives for his glory and for the good of others around us. Let's take up God's word then, beginning in verse 1 to 2. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence and you see and know all things. You know every soul in this place. You know our wanderings. You've written them down on a scroll, as the psalmist would say, and you've gathered up our tears in a vase or a bottle. You know us. There is no hiding from you. So we would ask you, O God of heaven, that you would pour out your spirit and you, O Holy Spirit, would blow where, your wi- blow where you wish. Blow upon our hearts and our minds and open them to the truths of this scripture this morning so we might see Jesus in him only and that we would long to be more like Jesus. So be with with us, we ask, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Surely you come to worship or participate in church because you believe that people can change, right? How do people change is a question that we often ask ourselves. And if we're asking that of others, how do people change? We immediately have to, how, do, how will I change? How will I change before the Lord? If we believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, that it's able to accomplish all the purposes of God in our lives and hearts, the implications are real for you and me. And it's real because of this, that if the gospel is true as we believe it is, then it means that God can always ask of us something from our lives. That is, there's nothing that God cannot ask by way of sacrificial service in knowing him. If you know him, you are called to serve him. And I I think this is, I believe this is Paul's big pastoral application in Romans 12. Romans 12. Everyone likes the idea of change or transformation, but almost everyone resists or rejects change when it comes time to do it, right? When it's required of us to actually change, we hate, by nature, we hate change. But a changed life by the power of the gospel is a sacrificial life, and a sacrificial life lives for the good of others, lives for the good of others around them. And this indeed, of its, in and of itself, produces worship in us as God intended for his praise and glory. Here, in these verses, Paul addresses sacrificial living, I believe, in three simple and specific ways. He is teaching us how to embrace mercy, as defined by the Scriptures in Jesus Christ. He is teaching us how to embrace service 
through this transformational, transformation and renewing of our minds. And lastly, he tells us to embrace truth. Mercy, service, and truth are a part of a sacrificial life before our God. Think of the term embrace, to hold on to someone affectionately or enthusiastically or willingly, like an idea. That, that's the point here. Holding on to someone or an idea enthusiastically or willingly. This morning, as you embrace Jesus Christ by faith, the good news, right, is that he already embraces you. This means we are called to be living sacrifices in a dark and a dying world, bearing witness to the word of his cross, that place where righteousness and mercy kiss, as the psalmist says in Psalm 85. It is from the cross of Christ that we experience and see on display God's great love and mercy for us. So let's go in the first point and look at how a sacrificial, how a sacrificial life embraces mercy. Our task is to embrace, as Paul writes, our task is to embrace the depths of God's mercy. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And you might say to yourself, well, which ones? And I say to you, all of them, right? As the psalmist would say, how many mercies can you number in your life and experience? Everything about my life and your life is an extension of God's mercy to us in Jesus Christ. It's God's mercy which creates movement in our hearts and movement in our lives. Every day and in every moment of our lives, we receive the undeserved blessings of God. Even, right, even in the midst of death, difficulty, or tragedy, many of those moments we call the dark night of the soul. Nobody told me that in my 50s I would be waking up in the middle of the, middle of the night, 3 and 4 in the morning, Right? wondering how God was going to work in particular areas in me and in my family. But then we rise in the morning, don't we? And we can sing along with the hymn writer. Morning by mornings, new mercies we see because of our God. God's mercy, though, doesn't make any sense, right? doesn't make any sense at all. If you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 7, God makes sense of his mercy simply by saying this, I didn't choose you because you're a great or a mighty nation, Israel. I chose you because I loved you. I love you. And I love you because I love you. Romans 9 says, God, where Paul writes and says, I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. and I will have mercy upon whom I'll have mercy. God is a gracious, compassionate, and merciful God. But then there's something that's, that, that's terrible that happens within us. When those, creechy, those creepy or cringy moments of self-deception move into our hearts before God, and we begin to think that we can earn or add to God's mercy. Or even worse, that we deserve God's mercy. And at this very moment, when this happens regularly in our lives even in a crisis of faith often, that there is nothing more cosmically offensive to God than to think his mercy is not enough for us in Jesus Christ. Paul says it to, to Titus in Titus chapter 3. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Our task is to embrace the depths of God's mercy, but furthermore, our task is also to embrace the people of God's mercy. The local church, 
The local church is, is a body of people gathered together in Jesus Christ, solely gathered and shaped by one reality, his mercy for you and me. This is why the church is not the garden club, country club, or any other civic organization. We have been called out by God to be his family. We belong to him only because of his sovereign mercy and grace. Why else would Paul plead to the Romans, even in this text, he calls them brothers, urging them to remember the depths and the beauties and the wonders of God's mercy to them. He actually uses the word there, the word being used there to urge is the same word we talk about, the work of the Holy Spirit, to come alongside, to comfort, to press into service. That's what Paul is doing with the church in Rome at this moment. And of course, as the family of God, we are always undeserving, right? But we have been divinely adopted. And this means, of course, that gratitude and service are the only proper responses in the local church as the very family of God. It was a privilege on Wednesday night for Kathy and I to walk around and see the chaos, food chaos, kid chaos, lots of chaos. But what was more, even more beautiful than that was seeing all the people gathered to serve in the midst of that chaos, who were being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to the little ones and to those walking in and getting to know this particular church family. It's beautiful to see how the body of Christ can serve because of God's mercy. Thomas Erskine rightly said this, that New Testament religion is grace and ethics is gratitude or service. It is no mistake that the Greek word in the New Testament for grace is also the same word for gratitude, he says. 1 Peter 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Like Peter, we should be filled with gratitude and hope as the family of God. We are resurrection people. We are new creatures in Christ. He has given us his spirit in all things to accomplish the purposes he has for us upon the earth. And Paul is saying, that we must act like the family of God by becoming servants to all. That is your neighbor. That is whoever shows up in your life at any given moment. We are to be servants of all. You may remember the parable that Jesus describes a tax collector and a Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. In Luke 15 to 18, that section, we find out that, that God is seeking lost things. He's buying back lost and broken things and redeeming them for himself. And those are people, ultimately, right? But in this text, we are reminded that Jesus is warning the church of Israel at this moment that they had taken all of the mercies of God's grace and his promises for granted. They had become arrogant and stubborn-minded. And so he says this, and he uses this parable and story to remind us this morning. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax, collect, a tax collector. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's you and me. We're the Pharisees most often, aren't we? You've, you've this week, this very week, you have, you have said, you've said of others in your heart, you might not have said it out of your mouth, and that's smart, you're wise, 
But you've said and you've thought to yourself, I'm so glad I'm not like so-and-so. You know, if so-and-so only listened to me, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be in the circumstances that they're in. You, you might have said that of your own children or grandchildren, if they just listened to me, they would get mercy, right? But my friends, isn't what Jesus is saying, we really are, the, we're the tax collector. And the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We need God's mercy because like this tax collector, it is all we have. In Romans 9, 16, Paul writes to the church in Rome again, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We need God's mercy this very hour. As a church, we can ask ourselves regularly, if we we believe in change and transformation, are we creating relationships and spaces in our homes and in our lives and in this particular church that celebrate and delight in God's everlasting mercies for you and Jesus? Are we creating those opportunities Are we entering into those spaces to share God's mercy with others? Or are we typical American evangelical consumers creating worship centers which serve ourselves and our own preferences? I come here because I get what I want. As I've traveled throughout the Mid-South and stayed in a lot of, uh, my kids would say janky, but some not so you know, upscale motels facing out in the parking lot. I've listened in those night hours not being able to sleep and hearing little children run down the hallways or down the concrete hallways at three and four in the morning screaming and yelling and playing at three or four in the morning. And seeing that there were people that were just, they weren't checking in for the night. They'd been living there a long time. And to hear one lady at a Starbucks down in Hattiesburg where was sharing her whole life. She was the wedding planner for this couple, and she was sharing her whole life and how she was no longer in relationship with her family, that she was broken and sad, but she wanted good for this marriage. She wanted to be the wedding planner for that marriage. And all I could hear in her voice was longing. Brothers and sisters, there are people all around us, everywhere, who are looking for and longing for a family where they can find mercy, where they can see grace in you and because of you. We live in a lost and dying world that needs the healing graces of God. And so surely your your mantra, your saying, is that you are launching this healing from within this church to the world in which we live here in Oxford or beyond, that the gospel must go out and be a part of how we live in this world and in this community. There are many people looking to discover God's mercy. Can people discover God's mercy with you? A sacrificial life embraces mercy. Secondly, a sacrificial life embraces the body for service. Our bodies matter to God. They were created for his mission in the world. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ put on a body? and lived perfectly and righteously in a body, and died upon a tree in a body, and was buried with a body, and was resurrected with a body. And guess what? He's coming back again with a body. Why? For your bodies. 
He's going to give you new glorious and beautiful bodies. And that's the hope by Paul is writing about. To present your bodies as living sacrifices before your God. We are not theological bobbleheads, as I like to say. You know those little plastic things you put on your dashboard or in your office representing some character of a person? You and I can quickly become people who live in our minds and not with our lives or our bodies. That's what the Jews and the Greeks struggled with. The Greeks thought the body was just a a carcass. Who cares? It's just a body. Do whatever you want with it. The mind is the only thing that matters. And for the Jews, they wanted to perfect the mind, to perfect the body with the laws and the practices that their religion offered them, even though their bodies were corrupt. You see, it is the grace of God, the knowledge of God that is ethical, and it is, allows us, it presses us into service for him. The simple statement might be, we know so that we might do. We are called to serve a God's priests in the world. That's why he uses language to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, living sacrifice. You know what Paul says about himself? He talks about himself as an offering, as a drink offering. He was pouring out his life all day long until he ultimately gave his life for the hope and promise of the gospel. Why? Because Christ is our final sacrifice, and in him we are a kingdom of priests to serve in the world. The spiritual sacrifices we are called to make in the world are actually used by God to change the world. Don't underestimate the smallest thing which God may call you to do. You have no idea how the sovereign king may use your efforts as meager as they may be. The spiritual sacrifices we make are for God and for his glory alone. So as the body of Christ, we are to live sacrificially for each other in this room and beyond, right? And for the neighbors around us, how do we do this? I'm convinced in our modern day, right, that that writing checks is fairly easy even in a down economy when inflation is really bad. We are the wealthiest nation that has ever lived upon the face of the earth. So what would cost you the most that Jesus may demand of you? Your king. It would, not, would it not be your time? Isn't time worth more to you than rubies or gold, as the psalmist would say? Our time is greatly short. But look at Jesus. Look at his ministry. The three short years he was called to live upon the face of the earth, and he gave his time, hours upon hours, with those disciples and those divine appointments and interruptions in his life. May I encourage you to think about how you could visit and meet with others, pray with others, be present with others, listen to others. At least one thing that wedding planner was saying is, no one listens to me. Will you listen to me? Even I'm going to do your wedding, right? I travel enough to know that pastors and parishioners and all folk are longing to be heard to have their story known and to have somebody care about the story of their life. I have a family member that has on the back of her truck, says, the more I get to know people, the more I like my dog. Now, you might, there might be some trucks with saying, I don't know, I don't know you well enough yet, but that's probably true in our hearts at least. 
So it's no surprise, right, that in our crass, judgmental, rebellious, neo-barbarian culture, we, pe- we treat people like dogs. We treat our dogs better than we often treat people in the midst of our lives. And by the way, this is what the Roman one reality was, that we worship created things rather than the creator. We are called to live sacrificial lives. So we are, to call, we are called by God to serve as priests, but we're also called by God in our servants in the body as worship to God. He says, he goes on to write, that we present our bodies holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is he saying? All of life is worship. Worship is this morning here, and it's out the doors the rest of the days of the week. And please don't fall into the trap and don't make an excuse that you don't know how to bring a perfect sacrifice. Don't let the the robber of good be perfect. That's not what's being said here. You are simply called to go and serve because Jesus calls you, he will equip you, and he will give you the strength and the gifts that you need to do this work. Christ is our mediator, and the grace we find in the new covenant changes and renews our hope in the gospel. And this means that our best or average or even poor sacrifices are mediated through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the good news this morning. You might have came in here ready to worship with your best A-game worship. Great. You might have came here this morning and you're like, I don't know if I'm even awake yet, and I'm not sure exactly why I'm here, but I do know want to know something about Jesus. Whatever you have come to do, if you have come to worship Jesus, the good news is that your worship and your life is mediated through the blood of Jesus Christ, and it is made perfect before the eyes of our Heavenly Father. That's the good news. Our service is unto God and perfected by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. We are set apart in Christ to serve him on Sundays and beyond the walls the rest of the week. So worship God and go and serve him. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I even sensed this when I was studying and learning as a student at Ole Miss, that we can become very spiritually obese, right? That we can just learn so much stuff that we really don't even know what to do with it all. And we know that we know so much stuff that we are responsible for, which is scary in and of itself, I had the privilege of one summer working at a camp in Northeast Alabama, and as a young 20-year-old college student who was going to work as a counselor, I realized for the first time in my life, I don't think I had served anyone at all, right? And the whole time in my experience in college, I was learning the doctrine of Scripture and rejoicing in justification, adoption, and sanctification, all these wonderful doctrines of grace. But I had become sort of like a theological bobblehead. I knew a lot of stuff, but I didn't know how to serve. Well, that changes when you start working with nine and 10 year old boys for a whole summer who mess things up, who are messy in every single way. And then those doctrines, what? Those doctrines became precious to me. Oh, I am justified. So freely I might serve these young, restless, crazy nine and 10 year old boys. It forced me to grow in the truths I already knew. We need to be living sacrifices with what we already know because to grow and to change is to keep believing and trusting in the message of the gospel of grace. A sacrificial life embraces 
service. And lastly, a sacrificial life embraces the mind with truth. The mind with truth. Verse 2, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That word transformed is the same word was used in Matthew's gospel to talk about Jesus being transfigured. Right, that the glory of Jesus shone through, shone through his earthly flesh. And the disciples wanted to set up tents and stay there and worship forevermore. That's a picture of you and me. Earthen vessels where the glory of Christ shines through us in our weakest moments of service and a desiring to serve. But do not be conformed, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. J.B. Phillips, a commentator, quotes this and and kind of rephrases this verse. He says, Do not let the world squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. You see, Christians bear witness to, to truth, that God's truth is true, objectively, that he's divined the parameters of the universe and all life upon the earth. And it's our privilege to look at this world through what we call a biblical world life view, to look at the lens of Scripture to every area of our life, in the way we are married, in the way we parent, in the way we date, in the way we work. All thoughts are to be brought captive in obedience to Jesus Christ. And this reminds me, at least, that you and I have, have gates in which we worship God. You, you might have had your great aunt's house, or you might have even seen it Cracker Barrel, the three monkeys, right? You know, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Uh, that, those simple little, uh, th- that simple little illustration really talks about us as worshipers. Because all of those gates, the mouth gate, the ear gate, uh, the way in which we hear, all of those things are for our worship of God. And so we need to guard them and protect them. And that's the point of this text, that all of those gates, the, the way we speak and the way we listen and the way we see, these gates lead to the mind, the very minds of our hearts. And Paul is teaching us that our minds readily conform to unbelief in us and around us all the time. As one famed theologian says, the human mind, our minds, are a perpetual forger of idols. We will make an idol about anything at any moment of every day. And Paul is saying we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We must be transformed in and through God's word because it is reality as God has defined it. His very truth for us in Christ. Why? Because there are lots of things around us which look and sound Christian, but in fact are not biblically or doctrinally true. There's a lot of Christian ease out there. There are lots of ways in which we speak casually that are filled with unbelief. And that's why we are responsible to renew our minds in and through and according to the scriptures. That we trust by faith what we find there to be God's perfect will for us in Christ Jesus. He is not our cosmic bellhop or concierge, We are his servants and foot soldiers in a lost and dying world for the worship and glory of Jesus. So Christians bear witness to reality. And lastly and finally, Christians bear witness to this world through humility. Through humility. 
He says, so what is good and perfect, what is good, acceptable, and perfect is what we offer. You, you might not remember this, but back in Romans chapter 9, Paul writes in Romans 9, 3, that, that he himself wishes he was cut off from the mercy and the grace of God for the sake of his people. He literally says that. I'd be willing to go to hell on behalf of my people. That's how Paul humbles himself with such a weighty doctrine called God's electing love in Jesus Christ. In the next verse, he'll tell us something about who we should be as well, that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but be what? Be sober-minded, he writes. That's our calling this morning, brothers and sisters. This is more good news for you and me today. And it's this, that you can't mess up God's plan. You know the best plans you had figured out, all the strategies that you had to do this, that, or the other, and that turned out to be less than helpful but a real mess, right? God uses all of that to make you into the image of son, his son and to bring glory to his father. So salvation from beginning to end is his plan and his mercy for sinners like you and me. You see, we can keep giving him our lives, our mistakes, our bodies, and our minds to his truth because we have Christ in us and his spirit is the one who teaches and strengthens us with all the hope of heaven for restless and weary souls like ours this morning. A sacrificial life embraces truth. I close with this story in reading one of my favorite theologians in the past, Benjamin Morgan Palmer, who most of his ministry existed in the 1800s, a very famous minister in New Orleans, who was known to be a great preacher and teacher of the gospel. People would travel from all around the country to hear him preach. People from St. Louis, I remember reading an account in his life and letters about how men were blown away in the which he spoke about Jesus Christ and the mercies of God. You may know his name connected to Palmer Home for Children. They adopted that name from Benjamin Morgan Palmer, who cared for the poor and the needy in New Orleans. Uh, you may know that. Uh, you might know my son, Benjamin, who I named after Benjamin Morgan Palmer. And Benjamin Morgan Palmer established what we now know as Rhodes College, and he became their first president. He was a gifted man of oration and in service around this country at one point in time. But what's the most amazing thing as I read about his life is how he existed and served his people through two yellow fever epidemics in 1858 and 1878. That he would go out and visit with the families of the dead and those who were dying in his congregation. And even visiting those along the way who were not members of his church, handing out tracts and giving them the epistles of the New Testament to know the very word of God. He risked his life because he loved God's word. He loved New Orleans. He was looking for another world to come. Palmer presented his body and his ministry as a living sacrifice. One person writes, such actions prompted a famous Jewish rabbi of New Orleans to observe. It was thus that Palmer got the heart as well as the ear of New Orleans. Men could not resist one who gave himself to such ministry as this. You see, 
Benjamin Morgan Palmer was a word and deed ministry man. And when he was struck by a trolley car in 1903, I believe it is, it was said in the papers in that hour in the day that all of New Orleans came out to honor the ministry of Benjamin Morgan Palmer who had ministered for decades in that lost, broken city in which he dearly loved. Why did he do it? Because he was a changed man. And changed people present their bodies as living sacrifices according to the mercies of God and Jesus. May our prayer and resolve be today that we would live a sacrificial life. For indeed, our God is nothing less than a wonderful, merciful Savior. Let's pray. Father, we can say, along with the psalmist as well, if you were to count our iniquities, who could stand? So it's quite amazing that we have presence with you and that you pour out a blessing upon us again today through your word. May you bind and sear this word to our hearts that we might walk in the truth and knowledge of our Savior Jesus and that we would love you deeply so that we can go and love others more deeply. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.